Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and it is my pleasure to welcome Adele here. She is, um, I would say, kind of the, the, the mother when it comes to everything to do with antidepressant withdrawal. I, I, I sort of see her as... Um, the Heather Ashton of the uh, antidepressant withdrawal community. And she has just massively co- uh, contributed to the space by uh, creating the Surviving Antidepressants Forum, which has been going on for quite some time now. And it is just a repository of everything anyone would ever want to know about safely coming off antidepressants. And so, Adele, thank you so much for agreeing to, to come here and, and allow me to learn from you and uh, ask lots of questions. Well, thank you. Thank you, Joseph. That's that's very generous of you. Uh, Heather Ashton was a remarkable, brave, and incredibly tenacious person. And, and she's done a tremendous amount of work, uh, incredibly, uh, almost all by herself, put benzo withdrawal on the map. So I, I'm very honored by that comparison. Um mm-hmm. I, I I do I do think that I invented withdrawalology, so I I, I will uh, I'll claim that. Yeah, and 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 rightfully so, and I and I think that's maybe that's a good place to start because I think the history of how the tapering guidelines emerged on the surviving antidepressant form is really interesting. So I was I was wondering if maybe first you could tell us um you know if you could boil it down simply what what is the you know, the, the best recommendation for people who want to taper off antidepressants and then maybe explain to us how these um, recommendations evolved over time. Sure. Um, the I'll just go back a little bit in history. Um, mm-hmm. I, I came off of uh, paroxetine in 2004 under medical supervision and I developed withdrawal syndrome, and um, I uh, it wasn't it wasn't treated. Uh, and uh, even though I had been seeing my doctors and asking them to help, um, but uh, so I had protracted withdrawal, and um, and uh, so that was in about two thousand four. And I spent um, you know probably a year trying to get. From you know, trying to seek, seeking help from medical uh, providers, um, and then uh, at that, I, I I became very frustrated, and uh, I ended up uh, going to the web as people will do, and I joined a uh, a support group because at that time there were maybe you know maybe a half a dozen or ten. Uh, independent websites having to do with different types of um, um, antidepressant withdrawal. And then, of course, there was Benzo Buddies, which has been around for, I think, since maybe 1998. Um, So I joined a site uh, that was called Paxil Progress. And it had already been in existence for several years and uh it already had probably about 20,000 members at that time and um and it was pretty free form and and at that time it became clear that a lot of people were showing up who were being told to go off their 
antidepressant by cutting it in half and then, you know, after a week or maybe a few days, cutting it in half again and then maybe just stopping there. So so a lot of people were going off by what you could call it sort of like a half and half and half again method. And uh, it was... Um, it didn't appear that, it, and it seems to be very, it seemed to produce withdrawal syndrome really well. So it seemed like it was not a good way to go off. So so I guess we took a look at that and just, you know, among ourselves thought that maybe it would be a better idea to taper at a smaller rate than let's say 50% or 25%. So kind of arbitrarily we took 10%. So, so people were doing better with tapering at that uh, that small rate, um, but um, I think that uh, I think that maybe we were might have we hadn't gone to an exponential reduction at that point. That that was not a and this was very informal. This was just you know sort of like a very uh, you know uh, uh, people would join the site and if they were lucky somebody might come by and say, hey, you know, why don't you ta try tapering by a smaller amount? Um, so um, I, I, I was a member of that site for, for quite a few years until about uh, 2010 and, or 2011. And um, as um, these web communities will do, it, it was kind of disintegrating. And so I started my own site. Um, but by that time, I, uh, I, it seemed for some reason I had it in my, I had a, I had a curve in my mind where you know that would be an x that comes turns out to be an x uh, a curve of exponential decay, meaning that that the decrease would be proportionate uh, across the the curve. Um, which means that if you're tapering, that the amount of reduction that you make keeps getting smaller the closer you get to zero. And may um, I ask, was this derived just from your experience and experiences with others who found that as they got lower, it became harder? Was it was it mainly just coming from people just feeling this out? Yeah, I think it. I think it pretty much was come. It came yeah. from people feeling it out. So it really seemed as though, you know, if you think of a um, um, a helix, that it would be a it would be an, a, a curve that would be uh, where you, where you maintain the a constant proportion, but uh, in in relation to the last dose, so that the you know so that the the the, the, the steepness of the curve would be uh, controlled. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, and and this later on, uh, Mark Horowitz illustrated it very well in a much more in, in a paper that was much more grounded in an understanding of uh, receptor occupancy. So so, but in, I guess you could say that yes, yeah, so that it was it was the hive mind at work, and uh, and I kind of um, gathered up those resources and and I was in the midst of withdrawal syndrome myself and and my. I had I I, I really um, I couldn't do much except focus on the computer. So so I I wrote this up and uh, mm -hmm. 
and uh, in, in, a, in a way that people could follow. I have, I have a background in both instructional design and in okay. technology. So I, so, and, and writing, so I wrote it up. Um, so, so uh, it became, it became more widely adopted. And as it turned out, it was also a method that Heather Ashton had proposed uh, and there, a, a few other people had been talking about. Um, some people were talking about ten percent reductions, but they didn't specify uh, that it was exponential. And others had 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 talked about ex more exponential type of reductions. So, so there was some. So, so again, I think that just you know, like people from observation were converging on a similar idea. Well, let me ask you about that because, um, and this. You know, I'm, and I'm uh, maybe a little bit in, embarrassed if I'm remembering this wrong, but I always felt like the exponential taper was something that more came out of the antidepressant space because I've I've spent a lot of time poking around the Ashton manual, and and for some reason, you know, I I see, you know, I remember examples there of it being more linear. You know, the the cuts are really small, um, but it's like maybe you knock if you're coming down from forty of Valium, you're just knocking two two milligrams off every time on the way down. But yeah, I mean, from your recollection, are there sections in the Ashton manual where, you know, where she talked about, you know, slowing it down towards the end or. Yes, I, I think there are. Uh, I, okay. I'm not, the, I, I have to confess, I'm not the biggest expert on Heather, Heather Ashton, but, but okay. I think that, I think that that was one of the references I found because I looked for references for sure. this temper. Uh, on my website in my articles, I try to um, provide references where I can find them. Um, so i I had some I had some background. I had some references. Um, but uh, yeah, but Heather, but in the antidepressant space, where we don't do so much substitution, uh, Heather Ashton was uh, <clears throat> a substitution of diazepam. For for uh, in, in benzodiazepine tapering mm -hmm. was was a, a key concept, um, but with antidepressants uh, we do more direct tapering. <laughs> There's some um, people want to suggest that Prozac could be or fluoxetine could be a substitute the way that uh, diazepam is, is a substitute for antidepressants, um, or rather for benzodiazepines, uh, but um, there's something about that that, uh, that switch to, to fluoxetine often doesn't quite work. So, so, you know, so we've been tapering directly rather than, uh, you know, the switch to fluoxetine is, is sort of a, a last, uh, a last uh, resort. Okay. You really cannot taper, which some uh, it's peroxetine is really hard. So, Unfortunately, it's something people might have to face. So, and um, I think one of you know one of the key concepts, I guess, in in the Ashton Manual as well is this this idea of it's it's individual and it's flexible and it's led by the patient. Um, and right. so, um, you know, when I, you know, when I. Uh, spend a lot of time, I guess, you know, either in Cymbalta hurts worse or, you know, surviving antidepressants, you know, they do, you know, it's like, you know, 10% of the last dose and you kind of follow that way, you know, the whole way down. But, 
and then and this is like a nuance you know it's interesting between the commu- two communities in the benzo world you know it, it may be more linear but you know heavily em- you know emphasizing like make sure that you you know you never cut more than 10 percent you know you never go any faster than two weeks between cuts so you can do it and then just kind of adjust as you go you know if you feel like you know you know, mild to moderate symptoms are fine. You know, that's kind of why we're doing this because we want our brain to readapt. But if you ever have severe symptoms, then you reinstate at the last dose, you wait till it resolves and then you kind of come down. I think that would be the more, at least what I see more in, in the benzo world. I mean, is that similar in the antidepressant world as well? Or is it more proscriptive? Like, you know, you need to do, you know, look from the start 10% cut, you know, of the last dose, kind of the whole way down. Like, how do you see it kind of playing out, uh, you know, in the people that, that do this? Is, do they kind of stick closely to the method or are they kind of going well, more uh, flexibly? On, on, yeah. yeah, on surviving antidepressants, um, I have about a dozen really fine moderators working with me. Yeah. And we, we spend a lot of time in observation. And, uh, and I think that um, this is, I think that we're even more cautious because we talk, we, we advise 10% reductions per month. Mm-hmm. And the month is to, so you have that observation time for the drug washout, which is about six half lives. I allow six half lives for washout. Um, and that means that the, the the dosage change finally settles out to to a steady state so so you can see the full effect of the dosage change after washout um and um and then we allow a couple of weeks after that for consolidation so so we want people to be you know to to be taking the next reduction from a really stable platform um, maybe that's overcautious, but but we're real careful about that. And we spend a, we spend a lot of time coaching people to watch for withdrawal symptoms. And if the with, if withdrawal symptoms occur uh, within that period, um, and you know the washout is definitely a you know sort of like a, a hazard period um, that. Um, that they would consider a, a smaller reduction the next time around. So, so we, we we follow the same, I would say, the same kind of um, um, reduce and observe type of uh, pattern. It's it's a. Yeah. Uh, uh, I I don't think there's any other way to to taper properly. Uh, you can't. There there are some. Uh, you know there's some peer support groups that are pretty rigid about reductions and they go and they say just keep on to the schedule despite any problems that you might have but um our the thinking that we have is that you know once your nervous system gets bruised uh from a reduction you don't want to compound that with another bruise so so um so we advise people if if they get withdrawal symptoms that they should not taper again until the withdrawal symptoms go away. So, so, so we're definitely very cautious about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, this might be a good, a good segue to kind of actually, sorry, one, one more thing I wanted to ask. 
in Mark Horowitz's paper, you know, he, he talks about the, um, uh, you know, the, the hyperbolic taper. And, it, and uh, I think in one of the examples there, you know, if you were doing it purely by cert occupancy, which is the serotonin receptor occupancy, like I think, I think the example might be something like citalopram. It's like you could go uh, from like 60 to 40 or something like that, and you would only be doing uh, like a 10% change at the level of the receptor. I think that's an interesting idea because because that would almost be at the higher doses, it's 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 a lot. I guess it seems a lot more aggressive because you're dropping a higher milligram. But mm-hmm. that, but that's something that I don't actually see being practiced. I actually see people just kind of straight from the top. You know, they're just you know ten percent of the last cup, kind of the the whole way down. What do you think about that difference there? You know, with if you're going purely from like this hyperbolic model where you would be more aggressive at the top versus what is a more conservative model and what I see used more, which is the kind of the 10% of the last yeah. remaining dose the whole way down. Yeah. Well, when when he published his paper and I saw that he was uh, suggesting that the initial reduction would be, um, say, you know, 50% or 25%, I kind of, you know, I went, ouch. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the um, 50%, you know, if it, here, here's the thing, if from what I've seen, uh, psychiatric drugs are generally dosed too high anyway. So, 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 you know, they're, they're going they're going over the top for receptor occupancy. So, conceivably, if you're taking a high dose of a drug, you, your initial cut could be fifty percent, and you'd still be at maximum uh, receptor occupancy, or close enough that it wouldn't make much difference. But the thing is, is that this is very individual. So we don't know what any individual's receptor occupancy state is when they start out. Um, mm. I mean, we're going to assume that it's somewhere up there, you know, probably in the 80% or so, because it seems as though even small doses will have substantial receptor occupancy. Um, so, um, you know, in, in with... In, in, for peer support in, in surviving antidepressants.org, we don't have the uh, ability to prescribe, let's say, a rescue dose of benzodiazepine if people get into trouble. So, so we're, we err on the side of caution. And uh, since we can't figure out what anybody's receptor occupancy is, we say start with 10%. So, but 10% proportionately is a if you're if you're taking 100 milligrams, uh, let's say sertraline or something, then that's a ten, that's 10 milligrams. So mm-hmm. it's you know it's still it's still you know a chunk of milligrams. It's it's not it's not insignificant. And of course, it gets smaller and smaller as you go down. But but the um, uh, it's possible that an initial 25 percent reduction would be tolerated. But but you'd have to have people. I, I want to have a, uh, and I would like to hand this over to medicine for sure, but you'd have to have the clinician paying really close attention to what happens after that 25% reduction. Um, I'm not, I think that 50% is really, uh, you know, like walking That's on a the wild yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but I, I, I feel more, I feel more comfortable with the idea of a 25% reduction, but, on survivingantidepressants.org, 
we're extra careful and we say start with 10% and see how you feel about it. If, if, if someone, um, you know, if someone was doing the, this, this taper and, and let's say they're non-injured, so, so they haven't, you know, they've just, they're on a stable dose, you know, they, ha- they don't have protracted withdrawal or post-acute withdrawal and they want to come off and they're doing the taper and they said, you know, I've, you know, I've been doing this for six months and, you know, I'm, haven't had any withdrawal symptoms and they wanted to, to speed it up. Is, is there, a, I guess, is, do you, I mean, is, do you ever think that something like that is okay? If they're, maybe they don't want to go down proportionally and they want to kind of, you know, keep, I'm just going to, you know, shave, let, let's say we're doing Zoloft or something like that. hundred milligrams of Zoloft. I'm going to keep on shaving off 5% at a time. It's like, do you, do you see people wanting to rush it? Because definitely in my work, I see people wanting to rush it. You know, I'll be doing these slow tapers with, with benzos and, and, and the guy will say, you know, I'm, I'm tolerating this fine. I want to be off as, as quickly as possible. You know, what do you think doc? Should I, you know, and, and sometimes I don't know what to tell them. So I'd love to get your kind of thought on, on people when they're like, you know, I don't want this to take, you know, another, you know, 12 to 18 months, like maybe I'll just keep on going at the same pace. What, what do you think about that? Because it's definitely a question I get asked all the time. People do, they really hate the idea that it's going to have yeah. to be so slow. They hate it. Uh, and yeah, and they are resistant to it. Um, and, um, you know, miraculously, there are people who can just suddenly quit their drugs and have no problems. And they And their friends tell them this, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just went off my you know, whatever, like citalopram, and, and I was fine. Um, I don't know. Here's the, the thing is, is that once you, once you break it, it's broken. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, 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 it's a scary, scary thing. People don't realize how, uh, how delicate the mechanism is. And, and uh, so, um if somebody is tapering at ten, per, uh, Mark Horowitz actually has a has a method for this, which I think is really good. Is that people need to track their withdrawal pattern, um, and uh, if you if you uh, if you find, let's say, that you have um, um, you get withdrawal symptoms three days after a reduction, and they're mild withdrawal symptoms, and they go away in a few days, we would call that you know a successful reduction. And then you would, uh, if you feel perfectly okay after another week, you might be ready for another reduction. But you have to, you have to allow that time for the observation period. That's that's the controlling factor is that you want your observation period. And and I would say, you know, six half lives is really it's really the limit. So for most drugs, that's going to be. Um, well, it's going to be a, a week for most antidepressants because their half-life is a, around 24 hours. And uh, and then, you know, you do want to allow a little extra time to see if there's any other fallout. So I would say that the minimum time is every two weeks, a reduction is every two weeks. Now, the problem is, is that if you, are, if you don't already know, you're going to have to go more slowly to observe your um withdrawal pattern at the beginning so you have to do this very systematically uh Mm. so you'd have to like go through a few cycles to see if if you have that you know very predictable type of withdrawal uh, pattern 
or maybe no withdrawal pattern at all, maybe no no withdrawal symptoms. And then I would say start to, you can start to compress the timeline. So rather than, let's say, reduction every month, you might do it every three weeks to begin with and see how that goes for a few cycles. And then every two weeks and, and see how that goes. Now, the problem is that as you go lower, of course, the reductions become more perilous. So by that time, you might be in a two-week reduction cycle but it's not enough time for the withdrawal symptoms to appear. And then you might start compiling withdrawal upon withdrawal because you're, because you're, the cycles are too short. So, uh, so if you get into a problem at that point, you know, let's say after, after a couple attempts at that, uh, I would say you're going too fast. And, um, and what we found is that often if people just stop tapering and stay at that one dose for an extended period, maybe a few months, that they have a better platform to, for continuing their taper. But you've got a warning signal. If you, if you develop withdrawal symptoms, you've got a warning signal that you have to slow down. Um, um, based on your response, I'm, I'm assuming that you would think it is preferable to, to speed up the duration, I, I guess, to shorten the duration between doses, than to mess with the the um, the level that you're going down. You know, kind of keep that still, like you know, ten percent of the last dose, um, kind of pattern. Uh, or, or maybe, no, maybe I'm go, presuming. Yeah. No, it could go either way. You could you could okay. either shorten the interval, or you could make the reduction smaller. You could go. You could go either way. We have people who are who are doing. You mean make the reduction taper. greater than than shorten no, no, the interval? No, okay. you make the reduction smaller and, and taper okay. more often. So, so, so okay. we have people who are like, let's say, making three percent reductions uh, every week. So I see. So, so you know, so so rather than let's say, so that amounts to about twelve percent per month. So it's not a you know, so it's a little faster than a 10% reduction per month. But it's possible that if they're tolerating it, that the that their um, nervous systems are recovering in those in that short amount of time from that, you know, that small reduction. Um, see, see, I'm thinking that what you want to do is you want to sneak off in a way that your nervous system doesn't even notice. So, mm. so it's going to be it's going to be individual according to the sensitivity of your nervous system. So, if you can sneak off by just you know by like you know like re reducing a teeny tiny bit um, more often, then that could be as successful as a, let's say a ten percent reduction with a larger interval. That's a that's a good point. I mean, I see. You know, I like to think about that there are just like foundational principles in this and, and really it's like listening to your body is, is the major one. You know, you provide them the framework and, you know, the recommendations, but then everyone's different. You know, so some people, you know, like you mentioned, they, they may be able to do drops every two weeks and if they're tracking things systematically and they're tolerating, it's okay. But if, if, if that's not you and it's taking a month or six weeks, then you just need to listen to your body and do it that way. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. But, but you know, uh, people are not used to this type of discipline. So some people take to it really well and other people do not take to it well. 
and mm-hmm. they they just kind of improvise as they go along. Um, so yeah, so you have to listen to your body, and and some people, you know, they they just start out with this attitude of, I, I'm just going to power through it, you know. So mm-hmm. so so they're yeah. So they you know that the you know the, a lot of people. Like brain zaps, for instance, they'll say, well, I get brain zaps when I skip a dose, but it's no big deal. And then they think that, you know, they're going to go off their drug really fast and then, and all they're going to have is brain zaps and it's not a problem. Um, in my opinion, brain zaps are a problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, they may not be painful, but they're a really abnormal neurological sign. So... Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I would take them seriously. And I think that, I think that one of the big errors that, that uh, doctors have made in observing antidepressant withdrawal going back to the early 90s is that they didn't. They didn't. They didn't even see brain zaps. I mean, they didn't even record brain zaps uh-huh. for many years, and um, and then later on, uh, it, they just you know like just they just dismissed it as being a mild withdrawal symptom. And I'm, you know, I I, I don't think that any neurologist would want us would say, oh, it's okay if my patient has brain zaps. It's it's, it's a very peculiar symptom. It is really peculiar, yeah, and and I think that's good advice. I mean. Yeah, that's not something you'd want to push through. You'd want to wait for that to resolve before yeah. before going any further. Because you're right, it could be a. I mean, it's a sign of neurotoxicity. You know, there, there's something abnormal going on. It's definitely. I I, I would. It's like a, a a signal flare coming up coming up through your neurobiology, right? Yeah. On you know back onto the subject of um you know watching and 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 waiting. One of the things that is, I guess, really peculiar about the antidepressant withdrawal world is the delayed onset of symptoms. I, um, I've heard of it with benzodiazepines, but to me, it almost seems more common with the antidepressants. And this is just anecdotal from my experience. And I work a lot with benzo people where the benzo injuries, I usually hear them like, I got rapid tapered. I was in acute withdrawal. And then, you know, maybe for two weeks where I was miserable and then it just never resolved. And, and, and the injury has kind of started from that rapid detox. But when I work with antidepressant folks, like I'll have someone taper down off Lexapro gradually. They'll have kind of some withdrawal symptoms for like two weeks. And then like two months later, three months later, they develop akathisia. I mean, the drug has been out of the body for several months at that time. Mm-hmm. And it and that seems to be the most peculiar thing for me because I read it all the time, I see it all the time, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, what is what is happening? Um, like, I mean, like what what is happening with these with these really delayed uh, withdrawal symptoms? I and this is one of those areas where you you may not know, but to me, it's I'd I'd love to get just your conceptualization of this of of you know what people are saying about that phenomenon because it's really unusual well i think that the you know that your body is going to um it does its best to maintain uh homeostasis and that it it gradually slips out of homeostasis so so it's a it's something that um um the you know probably occurred 
while the taper was going on, but the symptoms weren't noticeable. And then, uh, and then it just, it's sort of, it's like, you know, a domino effect. So it slips out and, uh, and uh, finally um, loses uh, significant uh, balance. And then um, the symptoms are more, more severe and noticeable. I think that a lot of times when people go off of their, uh, well, their drugs in general, uh, initially they have very mild symptoms that they interpret as something else, you know, like, like say, oh, you know, I'm feeling, uh, for instance, the flu, having a cold, um, you know, I didn't sleep well because of stuff that's happening at work. Uh, you, you know, so, so they'll, um, their alternative explanations for very mild symptoms. And then if, um, let's say, they have a, a drink of alcohol and something, or they take an antibiotic, then all of a sudden it just, you know, it's like a, a fire starts, you know, it becomes bigger and bigger. So it's a, so it's like a little bit of disequilibrium or a little bit of dysautonomia can can gradually become a lot. Uh, and um, I don't know, we, we, we just don't know why this happens for some people. And, um, and we don't know what, you know, exactly how to, what to do about that other than uh, depending on what the symptom pattern is, um, when the, when the symptoms flare up, uh, possibly trying a very low reinstatement of the drug um, and uh, or or some other kind of, you know, figure out some other way to deal with those symptoms. But um, it's, yeah, I mean, these, these drugs get into your nervous system and they're, they become a part of the structure. And when it, when it, you know, when, when it's, they're taken away, it's like, you know, the scaffolding is gone and, you know, maybe, you know, some kind of um, cracks have been uh, appearing during the process and then they get, just get bigger. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, this idea of equilibrium and homeostasis is interesting because I could, I, I could foresee, you know, that maybe you stop your last dose and, you know, your brain actually has the capacity to still maintain an equilibrium, but maybe it's just trying really hard, you know, that it is, right. it's full throttle trying to keep things about ba things balanced. But then, you know, two months, three months later, you know, it's too much, you know, that it, it, it cannot cope with the changes anymore. And then it's not able to, and then you get this kind of toxic type reaction with akathisia emerging because things are so out of balance. And so I think that, I mean, that might be, I mean, that's the only way I could uh, make sense of it at this time. But um, I, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you a little bit about reinstatement because from my experience, that doesn't always work. Um, you know, when, when once they've kind of gone into that toxicity and they've developed the akathisia, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Could could you tell me about your experience? You know, uh, working with people and reading stories about that. I mean, how frequently does reinstatement work? I mean, maybe if let let's say they were coming down off Zoloft. I mean, what what dose should they try and reinstate at? You know, five milligrams, ten, twenty five, fifty, like. How do you think through these things when you're kind of in that chaos? Yeah, right. Um, 
I was going to comment earlier that um, Stuart Chipko used to phone me and all the time and 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 talk about yeah. this problem with you know delayed withdrawal showing up months months and months after he's been he's very carefully tapered somebody off and he also used to call me up and say you're reinstating people at too low a dose <laughs> because yeah. because what we do is yeah a reinstatement can work uh, surprisingly. And um, and what we do is we tell people to try an extremely low test dose. And uh, this, perhaps, let's say, you know, somebody's come off of, um, oh, I don't know, uh, 20 milligrams of duloxetine might be uh, a milligram of duloxetine or, you know, or 10 beads of duloxetine because... <laughs> that's the only way you can really titrate mm -hmm. duloxetine. So, so we'll suggest this and sometimes it, it does relieve the, the, um, the symptoms. And we also feel that, um, uh, that it, uh, it, it's not that big of a risk. So it's, it's a really, it's, it's a small, very small test dose to see if somebody gets just a little bit better, then that's a good sign. Um, and uh, even with those, uh, the symptoms that you called akathisia, um, which uh, I know I experienced surges of anxiety that were quite horrible, um, that the, the, um, restoration of a very small amount of receptor occupancy which is basically what you're doing with the a very low dose can can restore you know it, it can be enough of a crutch that the uh we, we do see withdrawal symptoms at least lessen in intensity um it's it's possible that from that point somebody might go up in in dosage, uh, you know, after, after giving that the test dose a good run, um, and sometimes the test dose is enough. There, you know, there, there, the nervous system really wants to stabilize. Everything really wants to go back to factory settings. So sometimes just a little bit of a crutch is enough of a crutch. It's really quite remarkable because we do pretty routinely advise uh, a low dose reinstatement, although. Yeah, it's not guaranteed, unfortunately, and, and and that's really too bad. And I'm and I'm trying to think, um, like let you know in that example you provided where you go back on ten beads of duloxetine, um, I, I would imagine you know you should at least from a pharmacologic perspective, maybe you should expect to to feel better that day. You know, it should be really that quickly. But I mean, is that how it plays out, or do you usually recommend? Sometimes it's immediate. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we know that even, you know, a tiny amount can give, you know, like give that receptor occupancy as a, a boost. It's not, it's not, not, it's not invisible. Mm -hmm. It gets in there. So, you know, perhaps that's, that's what the, you know, what uh, it, it seems to be enough in some cases to stabilize people. And, and then and they can stay on there for a while, and uh, they're going to have to go off, you know, bead by bead. It's going to be very, it's going to be very gradual. But they, but they handle that. And I guess, let's say someone does reinstate on a low dose. 
if the if the symptoms don't go away, do you recommend going higher on the reinstatement? Like if it was ten beats, you know, maybe we need to go up to twenty beats and and wait a little bit. I mean, I, I know this is a very inexact science. I, I'm just, I mean, what like what do you see well, people doing? Again, you know, have to we have to. We, we ask people a lot of questions about how they feel. So so if they feel a little bit better, but they reach a plateau, we'll say, okay, you know, maybe add in another five beads. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they see how they feel after that. So it, it, it sometimes it's sometimes people will start with, let's say, five milligrams of sertraline as a reinstatement. And, but then find out eventually they have to go up to 25 or 50. Um, but that's, you know, that's okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's what, that's how we want to find out what, you know, what, what works as the reinstatement. It's not a one size fits all thing. Now, the problem with jumping in with, let's say a full dose is that, and again, you know, this is something that comes out of my website. So I'm not sure you know, I'm saying that, you know, this is this is coming from an amateur scientist. So um, it, it's, it appears that people become very, very sensitized when they have withdrawal symptoms and they start reacting to caffeine and to, you know, to mm-hmm. all kinds of relatively mild things. Um, the problem with, let's say, giving somebody 50 milligrams of sertraline uh, after they've gone off of 150 over two years is that uh, is what's called the kindling effect, where the uh, where the that dose might be so high for for their sensitized nervous system that they, that the nervous system also reacts in a way that you might see akathisia and all those other yes. horrible. Mm-hmm. So so that's because of a of a dose that's too high. That's the kindling effect, and so that's another reason that we sneak up on it. Um, we just. You know, we don't want to. Tr- uh, there's no point in triggering and starting at at the top and risking kindling if you can start at the bottom and just gradually go up. That makes a lot of sense. So it seems like the key principle is really listening to the person closely and just saying, you know, how did this low dose make you feel? Was there anything better? I mean, you may very conservatively decide to go a little bit higher, but if they're mm-hmm. not getting anything out of it, and it's then, I guess you have to assess the. F- you know, the really, I guess, the need to put them on a higher dose again and have to go through the long withdrawal yeah. and potentially, uh, you know, destabilize them by exposing, a, you know, the nervous system to a higher dose of that medication that they have not seen for, you know, several months or maybe a year. Right. Well, well, there's, yeah. you know, there, there's an infinite amount of, of ticks that you can titrate to. Um, but the... Um, the the rule of thumb that I use is that if the reinstatement helps them a little bit, then let's hold on that and see what happens. Sometimes people feel that they've intuitively reached a plateau of effect and they want to increase. Fine, let's try a little bit more. So they keep, you know, they might go up a little bit more and they you know if they if they have the if they have the hang of listening to their bodies, they it, it's really a good guide. Um if they have no effect, it may very well be. I mean, no effect is not terrible. No effect may, may, be, may mean that it's just not enough. So then we also will increase the dose slightly and, you know, and keep keep going to see if we can get a good effect out of it. 
um, at a certain point, you just have to give up because maybe it's not going to work. But if they get a bad effect, you know that you're going in the wrong direction. So, you, so you, you you can just you know just back out of that. Um, again, so if you if you started at a low dose, it's it's a relatively low risk to 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 just uh, you know an unsuccessful experiment and just stop it. And, and may I ask from from your um, experience, I guess observing people who have had this delayed onset. Um, you know, akathisia or the constellation of protracted withdrawal symptoms. Is there any pattern there, you know, when, when it emerges after that last dose? I mean, is it around the two-month mark, the six-month mark? I mean, and then also, like, how late have you seen it? Has it emerged, like, 12 months later? Could you could you share your experience just, just from anecdotes that you've heard about when this pops up and maybe there's a more common time or thing well, to see? Yeah, here, okay, yeah, I have like, uh, yeah. So, so the, in, in the literature, when they say that withdrawal symptoms appear, you know, like a few days after stopping the drug, of course, those, in, in none of those, none of those observations were based on very gradual tapering. Mm -hmm. There's all, all, all of them were based on rather abrupt tapering. So, so you, so you, you know, that, that is a, uh, a, a few, in a few days means that, um, uh, you know, that the nervous system has noticed that there's a big change and is, you know, that the domino effect probably occurred after the very last dose. So that, you know, that probably started. So, so the, um, so th that's that's a period where uh again in the literature they've observed acute withdrawal and that resolves according to the literature in a few weeks which is you know they forgot to continue observing to see what happened after that so 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 in in the antidepressant mm -hmm. literature all of withdrawal is considered to be the symptoms of acute withdrawal, which which um, across psychotropics, and this this is in a paper by Lerner and Klein who compared uh, to, in 2019, who compared you know reported withdrawal symptoms from from all kinds of psychotropics. It tends to be something like you know they'll resolve in like a few weeks to to a month and a half you know three to six weeks is the is a acute withdrawal period so so that's what you know that's what medicine knows about antidepressant withdrawal coming from those those abrupt uh discontinuations so so we see people tapering and um and sometimes uh withdrawal symptoms will appear while they're tapering so so it's pretty clear that even a small reduction since since we have everybody reducing gradually a small reduction might evoke withdrawal symptoms and that and they will appear within a few days so so it appears that the nervous system will notice a drop in a few days mm -hmm. um the if somebody has been very gradually tapering and managing their taper in a way that they're not uh, compounding withdrawal symptoms by tapering too fast, um, the the uh, again the the washout period I think is the uh, is a period where you may uh, that's the highest risk period for seeing withdrawal symptoms because they usually. Uh, 
they, they appear well, the level of drug is declining in the bloodstream, and that takes, um, you know, around six half-lives. It'll, it, it gets down to its lowest possible level. So, so, uh, so, so we see people, um, that, that happens, that does happen. Uh, we see people, and, and here, here's the thing is that there's so many confounding factors, right? Because people, people go off their drugs and they feel pretty good. And then they might, you know, just have a glass of wine with friends and, and that it's, and it's not like alcohol is a devil or anything, but even if you've been tapering very, very carefully, your nervous system might be in a very, you know, hypothetically, this might be universal that the person is in, in, a, in a sensitized state and that uh, even a, a glass of wine might, might trigger a cascade of, um, you know, destabilization. So, so, mm. or, you know, they feel good, they go to the gym, they overdo it, or they uh, go on a vacation and they, you know, the time change will do it because they're not getting, you know, their sleep pattern is disturbed. You know, there, there there's so many reasons why um, uh, withdrawal symptoms might appear even though it seems as though somebody has been very safely tapering. And sometimes, yeah, we do have people coming in saying, I don't know what happened. You know, I went off of Cetilopram, um, you know, eight months ago. I seemed fine for eight months. Uh, but now I'm having these surges of anxiety that I've never had before. And that's a fairly typical withdrawal symptom. So taking them at their word, you know, it seems as though perhaps, you know, their sensitization was such that it extended over that long period of time. It just, it's it a, just accumulated. That's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, you know, the differential, I guess, is, I guess, one, you know, it could just, it could just emerge because let's say for whatever reason, you, you're no longer able to compensate for the, um, I guess the residual changes, you know, after you've come off the antidepressant and it boils over to a point. But like you said, a lot of people have very sensitized nervous systems coming off these medications. And this is especially true with the benzodiazepines as well, where, I mean, you name it, they get every adverse reaction when they try new medications. I had a, I was talking about a patient who had um, Flagyl, which is, um, it's a common antibiotic that you use for bacterial overgrowth here normally benign but it has this rare risk for neurotoxicity and you you better believe that they got it you know and and it, and it really set them off and you know what are the chances um of that happening and, and i see the story again and again which is that yeah. you, the nervous system is very sensitive it's, it's a lot more vulnerable to to side effects to medications to things like caffeine to things like alcohol where, I mean, it can, you know, it seems to be able to cause these these flares or these toxic reactions afterwards. So, I mean, I wonder what you think about this kind of recommendation, you know, for the year after you come off the medication, don't ingest anything that has a psychoactive effect. You know, just uh, uh, consider that your brain is still kind of re reforming itself. Yeah, th this, is, this is what we've seen coming out of, you know, thousands of observations on my website is that antibiotics seem to be quite 
quite an irritant it, it, and uh, and really very small amounts of alcohol. Alcohol and, and, and antibiotics are probably the biggest uh, problems um, or other drugs. Uh, you know, pe people become very uh, complacent and they'll just, you know, and they might even take another antidepressant. And there you go, kindling. So, um, or, you know, could could be anything really. Um, there's um, any, any neuro neuroactive uh, type of drug or supplement. Uh, St. John's wort. Any of these things can 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 kick off this. Uh, uh, this hypersensitivity reaction. And, and I think that the hypersensitivity is something, Joseph, that medicine is, com is completely unaware of these psychotropics sensitizing people in this way. Uh, this is, you know, we're seeing this across, across all types of withdrawal among the benzo groups. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just become a, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we understand, but medicine is just not, just doesn't understand this at all. This is not something that has, you know, that's risen to recognition. Um, when I when I wrote my paper, which is called something like "What I've Learned from Helping Thousands of People Go Off of Antidepressants and Other mm -hmm. Psychiatric Drugs," yeah. uh, yeah, I, uh, that um, I had to reach into the uh, multiple chemical sensitivity literature to find evidence of the sensitization. This sensitization, you know, it, it involves uh, repeated. Uh, um, um, repeated exposures to 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 toxic chemicals. Um, so so the um, yeah so sensitization I think is a reality, and I also think that very the very common practice of switching people from one antidepressant to another, or one antipsychotic to another, or even one benzo to another. Um, does uh, cause a, a cumulative sensitization where eventually, uh, you know, the, the clinician says, you know, the clinician finds that the drug isn't, quote, working, unquote. Well, it's not working because, you know, you've got some kind of like maybe low-grade kindling reaction or the person feels nothing but adverse effects from the drug. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I think that the sensitization is a is a reality uh, in the um, general prescription of psychiatric drugs and other psychotropics, right? So yeah, so and you know I, I see this like when, when someone has a benzo injury, they they often ends up getting dismissed as being like um, um, I guess uh, like having a conversion disorder, you know, being delusional. Because, you know, all the doctor sees is, oh, you know, this person's complaining of all these symptoms. And then every time I give them a medication, they have a bad reaction. You know, they must be, you know, just anti-medication. You know, they must be in their head. And they get put into this box, you know, and they're, they're having genuine adverse reactions to the meds. And, you know, the doc's just saying, you know, this is far too uncommon. You know, they're just, yeah. And, they're, you yeah. know, yeah. It's very predictable, right. And, and sometimes... Uh, you know, this happens all the time with the people on my site. They'll go back to their doctor and their doctor will say, well, we have to treat this even more strenuously. So so then they they bring up higher doses and stronger drugs. Um, 
and uh, you know the results are not good. And and the the further you go down that road with you know one adverse reaction after another from sensitization, and it causes more sensitization, and it makes it a lot more difficult for the person to recover eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think um, you know I read your paper, and I'm trying to remember. I mean, we, we, did you talk about the the alcohol literature? Because that's that's one of the areas where I've seen that, where they show that if people get put into acute alcohol withdrawal several times, the likelihood that they end up going and having you know f- seizures goes right. higher, and that kind of right. makes sense. It's like you know acute alcohol withdrawal is destabilizing the brain there's less capacity to cope with it after repeated insults and then ultimately they get the the fatal seizure that can lead to the cardiorespiratory arrest and death yes right right and yeah. uh yeah and right it, it uh, i think that uh I, I i think i i did delve into the addiction medicine literature uh for certain aspects of my paper um my my editor, who was Mark Horowitz, made me drop a lot of my references, so I don't remember if they made it in or not. But yes, yes, yeah. I, I I I was I studied the alcohol, the alcohol addiction literature. The alcohol, the addiction medicine literature is the only place where there's been really an observation of protracted withdrawal or sensitization. Or uh, kindling, you know, kin- kindling um, the kindling effect. We've got we've got the. I think the references are from the alcohol literature and from uh, benzo benzo literature from Heather mm-hmm. Ashton. Um, so, but the you know, but the we got uh, the psychotropics have a lot of commonalities, and they can all cause this. And one wonders exactly like. With let's say if someone is is addicted to to heroin, uh, they try and kick the drug several times, and then they um, um, lose tolerance, you know, because they've been off of it, and then they get a, a, another another dose that's maybe too high, and that'll kill them because they've lost tolerance. Uh, and and uh, I wonder if maybe kindling is also involved in that, but uh, kindling is not real well explained. So I, you know, I might I might be going way out on a limb. No, no, it it makes sense. I mean, essentially, we're just talking about, you know, the the cumulative effect of you know getting on multiple drugs, stopping them abruptly, and the toll that it takes on your brain, and how and how you may respond to chemicals in a very unpredictable way. After yeah, you've, yeah, um, yeah. After you've, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you think of, if you think of uh, humans, humans uh, uh, evolved to tolerate a certain amount of toxins, and that's why we have the pharmacological principle of ad- adaptation and tolerance. So, so, but, uh, but repeated application is not. It's not really, you know, repeated application of strong engineered drugs is not really something that uh, we evolve with. And, uh, you know, to explain it uh, to the people on my side, I say that the nervous system isn't made out of rubber. I mean, when you think of it physically, it's this very delicate web of, of incredibly complicated, tiny little neurons and and. And it's it's very delicate, and we're ba- we keep on bouncing drugs off of it, 
uh, as though it had an endless adaptability. It has some adaptability, but if you keep on, you know, disrupting it over and over again, it has a lot of work to do to patch itself up, which is why uh, protracted withdrawal takes so long. So uh, it's it's. Uh, I think that we have a lot of complacency about the uh, the 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 elasticity of the nervous system. Uh, and I, I think Giovanni Fava once wrote something like, it's amazing that our patients survive uh, this, this type yeah. of clinical care where they get switched all the time from drug to drug. And I do think that eventually it takes a toll. One of my theories is that a history of being switched from drug to drug is something that sets people up for difficulty and withdrawal. It's, it has nothing to do with their genetics. It has to do with their history. So that even, you know, like if they, if they, they've been on, let's say, Satilopram for the last 10 years, but the initial period they were switched from, you know, among, you know, eight other drugs that they may be set up for, um, for difficulty and eventually going off. You know, yeah. Uh, Pivoting a little bit to talk about, you know, ways to cope, you know, in, in the benzo space where I have a lot of experience, there's, there's often not a lot you can really do when someone is tapering and they have protracted withdrawal. The way I kind of think about it is it's a lot of reassurance. It's a lot of reminding them that they're going to get better. And that seems to be the trajectory for the vast majority of people. And then um, to the extent that they can to, to kind of distract themselves and stay engage, engaged in their life if they're able to. Um, I guess I wanted to get your perspective. What have you learned about, you know, in, in helping patients cope with these protracted withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants that helps them get through it? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it is, it's a difficult uh, reality for them because um, here they are going along innocently living their lives following their doctor's instructions and then all of a sudden they're plunged into this strange world of peer support and yeah. you know not getting any understanding from their doctors and they're they're very shocked they're very it's very disturbing to them because i think we all we all assume that there's going to be a, a medical safety net for us if something really bad happens and then they find out that there is no medical safety net other than let's say other than what a few pioneering doctors like yourself can have, have provided. Um, so um, it's really hard for them. That That's an existential shock for them. That's, that's really difficult. Um, and again, you know, they're actually going to have sort of like be in the situation of a person with a chronic illness for a few years while they recover from this. Um, that's that's you know, it's we 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 spend a lot of time counseling people about acceptance and relaxing and not expecting so much of yourself and also engaging in activities that are going to help you you know uh, enjoy life as much as you can and uh, help be and be healthy while your body takes that time to heal. Um, it's very, very hard. And, uh, you know, sometimes I say to people, well, what happened is that, uh, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, just an accident 
came out mm -hmm. of the sky and hit you. But unfortunately, now you have to to cope with it. You have to you have to let your you know you have to your your body wants to heal. Your nervous system and your body want to heal, but you need to do what you can to assist it and not to not to get in the way. So, um, so I think that understanding that is really important because people become very frantic and they go from doctor to doctor and they get all kinds of remedies and some of them really backfire in a spectacular way and they become more and more uh, frustrated and disappointed and, uh, and, and despairing that they're, that they're incurable. So uh, what we do see is that most people are going to be very, are going to very, very gradually improve they're going to very gradually recover from protracted withdrawal over several years. And um, it's, it's very, very tough. It's so, so, so that's one of the, I think one of the major functions of the of peer support is that, you know, is that we, we advise people of this and we, we, normalize it i guess you could say you know it's like a, you know, sorry that you're a member of the club so yeah it's, you know sure. it's so uh and and they they usually uh generally i would say they are very relieved to find that other people have experienced the same thing because they think of course that they are you know like the worst case and 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 you know there's no hope for them nobody you know nobody understands so that they're, they're relieved by some understanding but i wish that we could do more um there's not a lot uh it depends on of course what their symptom pattern is what they're capable of but in general it's just the basic things that you do to like to improve your health uh you know eat eat vegetables <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. healthy food. lifestyle stuff yeah, yeah. And, and be sure to get a little exercise you know as much as you can tolerate every day um you know get some sunshine enjoy your pets you know it's 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 tough okay and in that in that context one of the and i think that this is important too for us to to notice is that it seems as though no matter how people go off of their drugs, whether they have protracted withdrawal or not, they tend to go through a period of um, what I call emotional anesthesia. And this is to differentiate it from emotional blunting, which is an adverse effect of psychiatric drugs while you're taking them. So after you go off, a lot of people really commonly uh, feel this, um, you know, just basic, um, they, they, you know, they, they, they feel like they're not, they're, they're not enjoying anything. They, 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 sometimes they'll say that they, that they're depressed again, but it's, it's really an absence of feeling rather than depression. And we have to be sure to differentiate that because people very, very commonly will show up and say, I went off of my antidepressant and I don't know what's happened. You know, I'm feeling, you know, I, I'm depressed again. And, and we have to ask them questions and it turns out to be, this emotional anesthesia, which also extremely gradually goes away. It's a, it's an interesting corollary. I, I've been doing a lot of um, uh, interviews with people who have PSSD recently, and 
one of the things that they report a lot is that, you know, when they stop their medications and, you know, along with the genital anesthesia and the sexual problems, they feel just like you described, like it's almost that. And they say, it's like something inside me kind of died. It's that yeah. feeling of joy that I would have when I'd hug my son or a loved one. I don't have that anymore. I sit in the car without music on, even though music used to fill me with joy. It does nothing for me anymore. And they right. and they describe that they've lost this, um, you know, the sense of sensory pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of feeling. And like you said, that seems to gradually improve over time for some of them. But it's it, it's interesting. Um, you know, sometimes it occurs while they're on the drug, but a, a lot of the times, which is really curious, it, it's when they're coming off wh- where things really appear. And that's mm-hmm. also a pattern with tardive dyskinesia, which uh, from the antipsychotics that sometimes it emerges on the drug. But a lot of the times it's when people are stopping them. That's when whatever is going on, you know, they start getting the involuntary movements that tend to be permanent. So, I mean, that it's, it's interesting yeah. that you're seeing the same thing. Um, in, in, yeah. Well, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's a, that's a, a withdrawal symptom from the dopamine uh, neurons being exposed. It's dopamine supersensitivity. But yeah. the, the, um, and we have, you know, we we also guide people off of antipsychotics, so we're real aware of that. And it's it's really scary. In the United States, people are being prescribed antipsychotics for sleep. Uh, you know, I mean, they're they're being exposed to very high risk drugs for no real good reason. And and I I have uh, one of my site members developed tardive dyskinesia, taking twenty five milligrams of catiapine for several years. So common. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just it's really terrible. I mean, she's the just the, the sweetest person and then you know, very innocently is following her doctor's orders and well, I hope she you know, I hope it resolves. So so uh, yeah, so the, there's so um PSSD is is does not always accompany this uh, emotional anesthesia. The emotional mm-hmm. anesthesia can exist without any sign of PSSD. So yeah, it could mm-hmm. be. It could also appear with PSSD. So um, we don't know anything about this stuff. I, it's. I think that Giovanni Fava also. You know, he he wrote several papers about you know our antidepressants making people worse, and I think he was circling around this this. Uh, you know, this post antidepressant uh, lack of um, you know narrowing of emotional range. Uh, Is it? So, do they call it tardive dysphoria? That's that's kind of what I've yeah, heard. Or, yeah, the tardive yeah. dysphoria is one of yeah. the um, yeah. one of the terms. But but I think that uh, you know that um, I would say that again, as an amateur scientist, we've gone a little further in differentiating it from. Uh, garden variety depression. It's different from mm-hmm. garden variety depression. Yeah, it's, it's you know that I think that in you know the 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 in the literature, those who have observed it have tend to talk about it as a as a depression, and it's it's different. It's it's really it's really an absence of feeling. Emotional anesthesia is a is a lovely way to put it. Uh, yeah, I yeah, think, and it's yeah. not anhedonia. It's it's yeah. it's it's really just like you know, there's nothing there, because people when people are depressed, they might have anhedonia, but so they like something, you know, they like chocolate or they like their dog or something. But 
but the you know but this is pretty this is a blanket feeling where like nothing gets through to you i i experienced it myself for quite a while so yeah. you know i'm i i i know it and i was shocked you know i just couldn't believe that you know that that my emotions had gotten so flat <laughs> and another thing i wanted to ask you about is um is the pharmacologies, you know, the pharmacology that people use during this. I know in my work with the benzo community, I mean, some people say that they, they use CBD or cannabis, and while it makes some people worse, it makes them better. But the other thing that I've seen also is, you know, when I have people that are profoundly, have profound akathisia to the point where, you know, they stop eating and they lose like 30 pounds in two weeks and, you know, their skin is burning, um, I've had to put people on fentanyl to stabilize them sometimes because they just waste away in front of my eyes. Um, have you seen similar things in with people with that severe, like protracted withdrawal when they're burning and pacing, like that they need to go on like opiate medications for, I don't know, to keep them alive so they're not, you know, they don't take their life or anything? Well, I, I have had a few people uh, show up who seem to have some kind of wasting uh condition which we don't know anything about so yeah. it's hard to say what's going on there but um uh people report akathisia uh i have people who who've gradually recovered from it um it sounds like you're seeing some really severe cases i don't i don't have any capability to prescribe so so i i suspect that if they do show up on my website they look around and they you know, they, there's no, we can't really say anything to them other than to be patient and let it go away. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it's interesting that you find that the, uh, that a uh, heavy um, uh, pain, pain drug would help. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nothing curative. It's a symptomatic mask. If you know, for, yeah. you know, for people, you know, they're, they're, they're in so much pain They've completely yeah, right. exhausted all of their family resources. No one wants to watch them anymore because it's so distressing. I, and it's yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess you could say that in the extreme that what you're looking at is like, you know, like some is a pain syndrome that is sort of firing on all cylinders. You know, it's like it's, it's just tearing through the body in every possible way that it can, it can yeah. do that. Okay. Um yeah, I was kind of just pushed into that because I didn't know what to do. Um, and um, eventually, the the one case that I worked with, he was able to discontinue it. We 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 did this kind of on off cycle, where we'd use a fentanyl patch for you know they last three days. So three days during the week he would get it, and then the other three days he he wouldn't. And then we'd started and we did that for a month until the 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 wave ended, and then he was able to discontinue it. Uh, but it was. I'm 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 kind of just feeling things out as I go. Uh, yeah. yeah, I I think that again. I think uh, if if you it's it could be this is you know I I early on started looking at dysautonomia, and dysautonomia exp explains a lot of the um, a lot of the symptoms. Uh, and the and but nobody knows anything about treating dysautonomia, so it's not it's not that helpful to call it dysautonomia. But uh, but it, it, it's it, it also uh, might play a part. In, let's say fibromyalgia, where you have a, a hyperreactivity of uh, of pain receptors, mm -hmm. theoretically. Uh, 
And uh, it could be that if you, uh, again, if you give the nervous system a little bit of a crutch, that it will, it'll, it'll repair itself. I think it's really remarkable. I think that it's, you know, if you have faith in that. And if you can figure out what kind of a little crutch to give it, it can't be too big of a crutch because you don't want to like discourage it from reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if you find out some way to give it a little bit of support, that, that, that might be a way to encourage uh, the recovery. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're, uh, very much out on the bleeding edge here so I, i'm interested <laughs> yeah. to hear that you you did uh you you had success with with your method and it, it, and really you know I, I i i whatever you know perhaps that few days that that short those short periods of fentanyl assisted this person's nervous system to re-regulate itself which is you know like what what a wonderful thing that is yeah i have i mean i have no idea what happened i mean it it could have just been a wave that ended on its own and i just gently helped them tolerate it i mean there but there's other things like you said i mean what if just having that respite you know from you know this crazy signaling just firing and causing distress did something i mean it it could just, I mean, maybe it's that as well. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if I have more patients that I that, that end up doing this with. Well, you're get, yeah. you, you know, you're bringing up a good point because I think that what we're looking yeah. at is crazy signaling. Yeah, and you could. Oh, yeah, and, and it could be it could be coming out of the central nervous system, uh, because things are just not matching up properly. And I and I think that that's a, uh, you know, I know that I know that there's a lot of. Um, people who have views about the hormonal aspects of PSSD, but it could be a, uh, a centrally mediated dysautonomia. So, so, and I had PSSD too, by the way. So you know, I had the, yeah. the full, you know, the full set of the symptoms. Um, and I fortunately did recover, but it took quite a few years. Um, but, uh, but I think that, you know, if you, if you envision it as nervous, is this crazy firing, you know, maybe, Nerve cells firing at the wrong times, nerve cells, you know, firing in the wrong direction, uh, nerve cells not firing when they should. Um, you, you can get, you know, it's it's a way to visualize the dysregulation. Um, in 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 my case, I was, uh, you know, my I was fortunate to find a doctor who did treat me uh, after, uh, after I've been looking for four or five years, I, the last minute I thought, I, I thought that I would kill myself. And, uh, I was, I felt like I was plugged into an electric socket, uh, a lot of the time, all the time, actually, I, I wasn't sleeping. And, um, and he treated me with minute doses of lamotrigine and lamotrigine is an anti-epileptic, and its uh, action is that it uh, dampens the firing of nerve cells, and it 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 worked. Uh, you know, I I was only able to tolerate a tiny tiny amount, so I I think at most I was taking a milligram and a half in liquid form wow. okay. per day, and um, and it calmed my nervous system enough so that over a few years it stabilized. It took a few years. It was really, and you know, and for most of that time, I was still pretty much uh, um, 
incapacitated. So, so, uh, but it did very gradually resolve, and that was such a relief. Um, so, uh, I think that Guy Schrenard talks about uh, using anti-epileptics for uh, dopamine supersensitivity super psychosis. He's he's he made some observations wow. about again the re reducing the um, you know see, seeing it as uh, uh, sort of um, rampant nerve firing uh, and uh, and so the, the anti-epileptics is what they do. Now the benzos are as you know an anti-epileptic anti drug so um, but two-edged sword as they all are actually um, so yeah. I mean that's a lot of the, the things that I sometimes try with these benzo injuries when you know before going to something like fentanyl why not try gabapentin or Lyrica? I mean, doesn't work all the time. Sometimes we try, you know, just like, you know, these kind of, these, these nerve stabilization therapies that are usually the, you know, the anti-epileptic type treatments, like, you know, sometimes very low dose Depakote, very low dose lithium, verapamil mm -hmm. is a cardiac drug that has um, membrane stabilizing effects for neurons and it's used in migraines. I think all of these things are, interesting things to try but I, i've never found anything that seems to consistently work it's just a it's like a crapshoot uh really right right yeah, yeah. Some, some people uh with severe withdrawal symptom go into the hospital and they get uh antipsychotics and that seems to seems to work mm -hmm. so uh i don't think it's a good idea but it seems to work so it's a high it's high risk strategy um mm -hmm. But uh, oh, it's interesting that you mentioned membranes because uh, I wanted to, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, what we found to help uh, withdrawal symptoms is that um, omega-3 fish oil is something that uh, I think the, that the uh, chronic fatigue community originally uh, was, um, it, it was a remedy circulating in the chronic fatigue uh, community. And the... Um, the um, withdrawal community way back when uh, also picked it up, but it does actually seem to help. And uh, and the omega three uh, oils are uh, um, they they they're part of the constitution of cell membranes, so they're they're important. Perhaps they assist in rebuilding the cell membranes. I um I wanted to ask you if you could. Quickly comment on, um, on I guess, the status of, uh, I guess, protracted withdrawal from antidepressants or post-acute. Actually, I'm going to ask you this first. In the benzo community, there is a shift towards calling protracted withdrawal bind, benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction. You know, it's, and I guess the reason they're doing this is because protracted withdrawal gives the sense that once you develop the syndrome, you could reinstate the dose and it would go away like it's a withdrawal phenomenon. But what they're seeing is that reinstatement doesn't like once you develop this condition, reinstatement doesn't really work. It's just, it's like a, it's like a brain injury that needs to heal over time. So they're kind of pivoting to a new word called bind. Now um, is something similar. I mean, what do you call the constellation of, of symptoms? Has there been a, uh, a similar interest in you know maybe linking it more to neuronal damage than than withdrawal. I I guess I'd love your thoughts on that. 
good question, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, huh. Well, we're kind of at the dawn of withdrawalology. So, so over, first of all, what's known of withdrawal is a lot of it comes from addiction medicine literature and they have their own biases. Um, so, you know, so, so there's actually a, a reluctance to say that people who have gone through, let's say, a detox program and come out with this uh, constellation of symptoms have protective withdrawal. You know, they're, they're considered to need, to need rehabilitation. They just skirt the issue of the, you know, biophysiological problem. So the, the, um, so, so I guess we can call it what we want. I mean, I think that the, to link it to the historical, to, to what's available in history, I'd call it protective withdrawal. And I think that, uh, again, I want to refer to Lerner and Klein uh, from 2019. So they found this very similar syndromes across all psychotropics, including addictive psychotropics. So what we're looking at yeah, I have, I have like, I have a tag in my, um, my citation manager for theories of everything. So, so, so what we're looking at is, I think, a very, you know, there's a lot of commonality. And I think that we're looking at um, this extremely, well, a very modern situation where people are being exposed over and over again to, to engineered psychotropics and they're coming out of this with some some type of neurological effect. Now, I think that if you put the cells under a microscope, you might not see signs of injury because a lot of the effects seem to be sent perhaps from radiating from the central nervous system. And I would like to propose that they might be problems of timing rather than actual injury. So, so you can mm. have dysregulation without actual, you know, anatomical damage to the neuron that you could see, yeah. right? So, yeah. so it's hard to, you know, so, so yeah. I mean, if I, if I use the word injury, which I do call it injury because people will understand it, um, I, you know, I'm just, I'm meaning more of a global, you know, destabilization effect than an actual injury like a cut or a break or something like that. Um, I think that uh, if we want to enlist neurology in in looking at this, which would be a great idea, but lots of lots of inertia against it, um, that um, that they they'd have a hard time calling it a um, neurological toxicity because they don't see the signs of toxicity and they don't see the signs of injury. Uh, now, I guess what you're saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like it's like more of a uh, maybe the yeah, like dysfunction make makes sense because yeah. then that could incorporate your, uh, that that idea that you may not see physical changes at the neuronal level, but that the signaling is all is all messed the up. They're not functioning well. Yeah, the yeah. signaling is off. With uh, you know, if you, if you have serotonergic yeah. downregulation. You, you know, you're, you, those receptors are not are not getting the signals that they should get, or they get okay. them in a, you know, they get them in a weakened form, or they get them in a sporadic form, or they, you know, they just it's it, and and that goes downstream. So so everything is, you know, that it, it's all inter it's all interwoven, 
And you know, one neuron is one is looking for particular signals from another neuron so it can do its work. And if it doesn't get those signals at the right time in the right intensity, in the right flavor, it's it gets confused and maybe it starts sending off bizarre signals. So and, and I and and I would say that it's probably I mean, to me at least it seems like it's it, you know, it'd be more than just down regulation as well, because you know, there's these, you know, epigenetic changes. You know, it may just be they they just don't function normally, you know, whether there's more or whether there's less, they're just not reacting the way that they were supposed to, that that kind of chemical change over time has now altered the receptor, you know, the ability to the receptors to do what they were originally doing. Well, yeah. And it's, and and if you think of it as this very complex web, um, the way the way these interrelated systems repair themselves, it would have to be in like in patches, right? It, it can't can't fix itself altogether. It would have to, you know, probably start at the edges where they start binding together and you know and, and figuring out their signaling. It's a, it's a negotiation, um, and then and then it, it would have to eventually, you know, so 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 initially you have one percent that's reorganized, and then it gradually builds up until you get all of the you know, most of the percents organized. So, so it would, it, it fixes itself in patches and uh, they don't necessarily talk to each other until later. Um, and that, and I, you know, I mean, that's the way I envision a very gradual uh, recovery. Uh, but, you know, but again, in our very modern way, or maybe postmodern way, we keep on slamming the nervous system with one drug after another. You know, it, it, you know we were not, we did not evolve to get continual uh, applications of these neurological chemicals. Mm-hmm. Got a lot to think about. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of the time now. I, I think we've been chatting for about an hour and 40 minutes, so... Well, I'm, this has I'm, been so much fun. We should yeah. talk some more. Well, I was just thinking, I, I would love to talk to you again about, I'm, I'm thinking a, a, a broader topic. I want to talk about the recognition of this risk. So I'm, I'm, I, I will catch up with you on email because I think that's, you know, one of the biggest things is, at least in the benzo world, you know, we now have protracted withdrawal recognized, you know, in the labeling for all of the benzodiazepines, at least in the US, I imagine it's it's global or will be global soon. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case for antidepressants. And I want to know why. And I think that would be a really fun topic to talk to you about. We should talk about that. That'd be interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, well, on that note, I, I want to thank you so much for lending me your time and and i guess the audience as well so we could learn uh learn from you it's it's been a lot of fun on my side as well thank you okay all right i'll, I'll be in touch take care Bye-bye. thank you for listening to today's episode if you want to see the full video interview we also post these to youtube just go to wit during psychiatry on youtube to find those you'll also find several youtube exclusive videos from doctors yosef and marissa posted several times a week Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.